I'll try not to. I can spend the next six hours just on this topic, but um, banging my shoe on the table. But um, why is it Kraft macaroni and cheese and not, you know, Jack Black macaroni and cheese, right? It's very provocative. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Mark and Ben Show, where we're going to answer a bunch of questions um, that you have submitted via Twitter, via X. Um, and uh, the first question is from Curious Newton. What is the best way to approach VCs for potential funding? Good, Ben. Why don't you, uh, why don't you start? Yeah, well, this is an interesting one because I've answered this correctly before and people have gotten upset with me. So I'm going to try and uh, explain it in a little more detail. So by far the best way. So if you're an entrepreneur, kind of getting the introduction to the VC is a little bit of a test of entrepreneurship because a big part of being a successful entrepreneur is being able to kind of network your way to the right person. Um, and so by far the best way to kind of get to uh, a VC is to kind of find somebody who knows them. And I think that the good news is there are just a crazy number of people who know every VC because that's what VCs do. They try to get to know everybody. Um, so it's pretty easy to find, you know, to get to whatever six degrees of separation and chain your way in. Um, you know, the criticism is always, well, like, you know, I wasn't in that circle. Um, but, you know, look, I didn't even know what a VC was really, you know, when when I first started raising money. And I'm pretty sure Mark had no idea what a VC was. So, like, you know, that actually helps you if you come, if you can come from sort of outer space and network your way all the way to venture capital. That's also, that's more impressive than if you have a Stanford MBA or something like that. And so, you know, you should just take that as a challenge, but that's, that I think is by far the best way to get started. Cold email is probably the worst way, especially if you're guessing the email address. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I'd build, I agree with all that. And then I'd build on that to say, look, like, um, you know, we, I often refer to this as like the initial test, like, you know, raising money for a VC is the initial test for a founder. And then obviously meeting a VC is the initial test for being able to raise money. And I, I describe those as the initial test because basically it's like it, <laughs> those are the easiest parts of the entrepreneurial journey. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. It turns out the rest is much harder. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, and you know, it seems like it's daunting when you haven't done it before, but like it really is the easiest part. And the reason it's the easiest part is because VCs are literally in business to meet with startups and to give them money. Um, like yeah. everybody else you're ever going to deal with is not actually in that business. Like everybody else is like busy, right? All the customers and all the potential like, you know, employees you want to recruit and partners you want to have and everything else from here on out, like, they, you know, they're, they're not actually just in the business of like paying attention to startups. They have other things happening in their lives. And so what you're doing when you learn how to network your way to a VC and when you learn how to raise money is you're basically learning a set of reusable skills that you will then use basically thousands and thousands of times over the course of the next yeah. 20 years to actually build a company. Um, and for people who haven't, and by the way, I was, I was like this, I didn't, I didn't know any of this when I started, but like in sort of, you know, professional, in sort of professional business world, professional tech world, um, you know, post, you know, which is what you'll, you'll find after you, you get underway in, in sort of hundred percent of circumstances. Um, the way people meet people is through connections. Um, the way that people meet people is by finding a warm introduction, somebody who knows somebody who could vouch for them. That, that, that is how the business world operates and it always has how the adult world operates. And it, it kind of always has been, uh, it turns out. Um, and so, you know, as Ben said, if you, if you come from a sort of social background where that's a normal thing, then you'll already understand that. 
if you come from outer space, uh, like I did, um, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll learn it the hard way, but it's a very important thing to learn because once you come to grips with that, you'll realize, okay, this is actually how it works. And so therefore what I need to do is I just need to get really good at that. Um, and then once you get comfortable with that and then you apply yourself and you get good at that, then all of a sudden you have this new superpower where you can, you can reach lots of people. And, and, that, and that's sort of the, you know, the sort of compounding ability to build a network and be able to reach lots of people is sort of a, a real key for, for success in, 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 you know, basically in any business. Yeah. And in life, by the way, you know, like to get anything done, like it's a great skill to have. Yeah. All right. The next one from, and I'll not get this pronunciation right, Gil, Gil Erme. Um, I always feel like somebody's going to prank us one time and I'm going to say something really hilarious on the name, but Guillerme says, uh, reflecting on the evolution of venture capital, could you share which of your foundational investment dogmas have withstood the test of time and which have transformed? Throw out one that's definitely, um, which we got from John Doerr, which is uh, really done well over time, which is... Um, the question is how high is up? Um, and I'll just kind of leave it at that. So a lot of times, you know, people get very wrapped around the axle on everything from entry price to, um, you know, all these questions. But the, the, the big question is, is really like, okay, if it works, then how big is it going to work? It's also hard to tell sometimes. Yeah, so let's let's debate that for a second because you know we, we talk about this a lot inside the firm. Um, so you know I wrote this piece, I wrote this blog post years ago, um, probably fifteen years ago now, called "The Only Thing That Matters," uh, or it was, that, it was that one or a different one, but it was it was the blog post where I talked about this sort of triangle, the sort of classic venture triangle of people, product, and market. Um, yep. Right. And so this is sort of the endless triangle that you kind of deal with in startups and in VC, which is basically it's at the end of the day, it's always basically who's the team, what's the product, and yeah. then what's what's the market. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so when, when I wrote that post years ago, um, I, I sort of based it on, on, uh, actually on a, on a different legendary VC, Dow Valentine. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. right. And he, he always said the market. Yeah. He always said market, right. So what a lot of VCs, what a lot of Don's peers and colleagues at that time said is it's either team, it's the founders, or they said it's basically the killer product. And Don was always like, no, no, it's the market. And, and Ben, it goes to exactly what you just said. It's like, because what Don observed basically is you can have a great team with a great product and then they, they enter a small market and then it just, it never gets big. You know, it turns out how, how high is up is just not very high. Um, yeah. And so the whole thing is kind of a waste of time. And then from a venture standpoint, you just don't make any money because the outcomes are small. From a, from a startup standpoint, you end up disappointed because you just, you know, you didn't build a very big business. And, and so he, he always pointed to market size. And then he, he, he took, an even, of course, an even more aggressive approach on that consistent with Sequoia's kind of method. Um, which was basically like, if the market's big enough, like basically if, if, if the market is really big, then once the company kind of has product market fit, you know, the, the, the team is somewhat fungible, right? You can kind of pull out the team, you know, Cisco, you can fire the founders, you can put in a professional CEO. Yeah. Um, and then right, the job yeah. of the professional CEO is to run and capture the market. And his, his, his big thing always was look at the market first, go, go into the big markets and then sort of everything else will, will, will take care of itself. Um, you know, well, I, let me pause there. Like, how Ben? How would you reconcile that um, with? Uh, like, is that the same thing that you're talking about from John? Or you're, yeah, so so I, I actually think it's not quite the same thing. In that um, there there's kind of like if you were going backwards in time, and you knew how big the market was, then that would be kind of the answer to the question of how high is up. But I think that you know, when we evaluate deals, what we always find is like 
the most impossible thing to evaluate is the size of the market, particularly if the market hasn't been, if the product is going to create the market. Um, and so then you're a little bit back to how far can this entrepreneur go and how big a breakthrough is this idea is a, a little bit more how I would interpret how high is up. Right. Um, so is this something that's basically, if it works, is going to affect everybody? Right. Um, and, you know, and is this the entrepreneur that is going to make it work is kind of the more relevant question to me than like, what is the market size, you know, particularly for things, I mean, what was the size of the electric car market when Elon started? It, was, it seemed like a zero. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, now it seems like it's, you know, maybe potentially bigger than the entire auto market combined. And so, you know, that, that I think is a bit of a trap to really try and size the market in a kind of business school methodology. Yeah, Elon, um, so when he, for people who don't know the history, when, when Elon started Tesla, the, the market for electric cars was so small, was viewed as so small by everybody at the time, except for, except for Elon and his, his colleagues. Um, it was viewed as tiny, and, and, the, and, and it was actually said, to give you an idea of how prevailing the view was that it was small, was um, you know, the, the main electric car up until that time in the modern era was called the, the EV1, and it was, a, it was a car made by General Motors probably 20 years ago, uh, 25 years ago. And, um, and it basically, a handful of people bought them. You could, you'd see them occasionally in Silicon Valley. That line. Yeah, they killed it. Like they, they killed, you haven't heard, you have, people listen to the podcast, I'm sure haven't even heard of it because they, they, they killed it. Yeah. Um, and, and it was such a flop um, that they actually made a, doc, there was actually a documentary movie called Whatever Happened. Oh, Who Killed the Electric Car. Who Killed the Electric Car. And literally, if you watch the documentary, it goes through basically the complete comprehensive failure of the electric car. And basically, it, and the, the big conclusion is, oh, the market, there's just only, the only people who want electric cars are like a very small number of rich hippies and like, that's it. Um, yeah. Right. And you can't build right. a business on that. And then, you know, of course, Elon and his colleagues came along and like completely redefined the market. Uh, right. And so, yeah. <laughs> and you redefine the market by building the right product. Right. So that's right. Exactly. So um, and then, you know, Ben, this goes to, you know, kind of a contradictory piece of, of guidance that I think has served a lot of entrepreneurs well. Um, you know, and let, let's talk about how we can reconcile that, which is what Paul Graham says is sort of very, very contra, you know, that maybe the John Doerr um, or Don Valentine view of things. What Paul Graham says is his famous advice to founders is, quote, do things that don't scale. Um, yeah. And, you know, what he means by that is like, look, like basically prove the prove the product market fit up front um, with, you know, by hand. Right. Like like, you know, yeah. and his classic example here would be like something like Airbnb, for example, where it's like, you know, you have this like fundamental liquidity issue. You have no supply. You have no demand. You have no marketplace. You have no matching. You know, nobody's listing their yeah. houses for renters who don't exist and nobody's renting on, on Airbnb if there's no supply. Right. And so, right. so, so, you know, his advice to like the founders of Airbnb would be something like go out by hand and sign up a bunch of places, right, to uh, list, you know, rooms to rent. Right. Uh, and bootstrap then, it. Right, bootstrap it. And then, and then go out by hand and find a group of people who might want to rent a room. And, that, and the particular breakthrough for Airbnb, right, actually was around design conferences, right? So they, they specifically targeted design conference because they were designers. And so they literally marketed to the people who were coming to San Francisco for a design conference. Here's, you know, here's how to rent a room you can stay in. And then they, they went out and like signed up, I think basically by hand, they signed up rooms, you know, available to rent in people's houses in San Francisco. But, but I bring this up because yeah. like do things yeah. that don't scale sounds antithetical to, you know, basically how high is up. Um, and yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and I think kind of it goes with the other thing he says, which is um, make something that people want. Um, and I think that's the, that's kind of the the key unlock on the whole thing. Um, but you know, there are things 
that that people want that have uh, not that much potential to them as well. So, and 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 it is tricky. It's it's much easier to go, okay, that's something that people want rather than, um, you know, and this is exactly how many people and what they'll be willing to pay for it. That's a harder thing to figure out. Certainly in the kind of seed A stage. Yeah. Well, that's maybe the, the final f- final point to make maybe on this topic is, um, you know, make something people want, you know, do a lot of people want this. That's one question. There, there is a related and extremely important question, which is, will they pay for it? Yeah. Um, and how much? And how much? <laughs> and how much will they pay for it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so th- there is something that you you see, like, look, there have been some great venture investments in things where the product started out as free. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. we, get, we get all this many examples of that or, you know, are super yeah. cheap and then they walked up the price over time. But, you know, you, you also do see cases um, where, you know, it turns out there's something that people actually like a fair amount as long as they don't have to pay for it. Or, or by the way, as long as they don't have to pay for it at a rate that's actually above the cost of providing it, right? Like, yeah. you know, so, sometimes there are products that are quite simply just like subsidies, right? Where you're just giving people a discount yeah. on something they'd be buying anyway, and it turns out they want a lot of right. that. It just turns out that can't be a business because it's just going to burn cash uh, forever. And so, um, yeah, there is this related thing, which is, yeah, will, 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 will people pay for it and how much will they pay for it? Um, and of course that, you know, price, pricing, and pricing, as it turns out, is its own science and its own art, um, and probably you know a, a whole could be topic of like many shows just just uh, in a, in and of itself. But but uh, always worth thinking about, even if you're not starting out charging. All right, the next question is from Kong Fam, and uh, Kong Fam's question is: What are your thoughts on the creator economy blending into startup territory? Examples: Mr. Beast with festivals, Logan Paul with Prime. Will it become the norm, or is it just a fad? So I'll take a whack at it. So um, uh, so this is basically, I think about it, if I have the question right, this is basically the phenomenon of sort of branded creators, individuals, uh, people with individual brands yeah. um, who are kind of big, you know, either, you know, existing celebrities like movie stars or new celebrities like, you know, YouTube stars like Mr. Beast. Um, and then they basically have consumer product lines. Um, and so uh, Mr. Beast, you know, Feastables yeah. is, a, is a food, you know, it's cookies and, and candy bars and so forth. Um, and then I think uh, Logan Paul's. I think is uh, I think it's an energy drink, if I if I recall properly. Yeah, I think so. yeah, yeah. And so there's a bunch of these. And then look, you know, Hollywood is kind of very focused on this right now. And so there's you know, famously, Ryan Reynolds has uh, I think his his aviation gin. Uh, George Clooney has a tequila label. You know these. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, just, yeah, that's done very well at Casamigos. Casamigos, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So um, mm-hmm. yeah. So there's there's a big there's a big thing a big kind of thing on this. Um, so, you know, there's two ways of looking at this. I think one is, you know, these, well, uh, by the way, another one we should give, you know, huge credit for is Kim Kardashian with uh, Skims. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that's poof. Right, which is like a huge, apparently like a very, everything I'm at least hearing is a very big business now. Um, and so th- there's kind of two ways of looking at this. You know, the historical way of looking at this, I think would be sort of these are gimmicks, um, you know, which is it's like, fa- you know, it's like, okay, fans of somebody are going to buy the thing they recommend, you know, kind of for a while. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, mainly, you know, these things are not, you know, m- most consumer markets are not this most, con- you know, most, con- when you go to the grocery store, most of the products on the shelf are not this kind of thing. Uh, but if you go yeah. to the clothing store, most of the products are not this mostly it's, you know, most consumer products are provided by these, you know, giant branded product conglomerates like Procter and Gamble or Unilever or Kraft Foods or, you know, Ralph Lauren or, you know, what, you know, whatever. Right. Um, uh, and so that, you know, the sort of traditional view would be these are kind of gimmick sideshows to kind of main, the mainline consumer products businesses. Um, I think there's a more aggressive argument you could be made, which is kind of where I am, which is I think maybe these sort of influencer creator branded kind of individually branded things. I think this might be the future of consumer products generally. Um, and the, the, the theory on that would be that, you know, wh- why are there product brands? Like, why is it Kraft macaroni and cheese and not either, yeah. not, and by the way, not either generic macaroni and cheese. 
um, right or yeah. not, you know, whatever, you know, Jack Black macaroni and cheese, right? Yeah, right, right. right. Um, or whatever. I just watched Tropic Thunder again, so he's, he's on my mind. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's a great movie, by the way. I was just trying to think of somebody who might endorse some mac and cheese. I think it would be banned today, though. It was, could they make that movie today? It is inconceivable. Um, that they could, they could, <laughs> the movie holds up incredibly well, and it is absolutely inconceivable um, <laughs> that it even be made today. But anyway, so Jack Black was, was a genius in it, so uh, it's, it's on my mind. Uh, but... Um, so, uh, so why do these like why do these sort of consumer why do these non personalized non human right like you know craft yeah. or whatever or whatever you know tied or you know take your pick of any of these things uh, you know Johnny Walker you know Scotch whatever you know why do these sort of non person non you know celebrity non creator non influencer brands exist and the reason the reason I think is because of the media of the era in which those brands were created. Um, oh, right, 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 right. And the right. centralized media leads to, to brands as opposed to people. As opposed to people. And so, right, exactly. And so this is like, you know, in the Mad Men era, right, from like, you know, basically the, the sort of mass mass media era, call it from the 1930s to like the 1980s or something with radio and television, you know, basically the thing that you could do to build a brand was you could run TV, you could hire Don Draper and you could run TV commercials. Um, yeah. and you just want a TV commercial was like a 30 second mini drama, mini comedy, and you had a chance to get one point across and you weren't trying for the most part to market a person. You were trying to market a product. Um, and so you just had this like super hyper distilled, like basically single shot, uh, to be able to kind of get, you know, Coca-Cola established or like, or, or, or whatever yeah. it was. Um, and you had yeah. celebrities in those days, but like you, they, they, they weren't like front and center in, in this effort because just like you were just trying to get the basic message, message of the, of, of the product out for the, for the most part. Um, and, and so, but, but then that leads to this kind of very unnatural configuration where now you have individual consumers who like have a relationship with a brand, right? Like, like a re relationship with a corporation. <laughs> with Bud Light. With yeah. Bud Light. Yeah, exactly. Like my relationship with Bud Light. Like why, why do I have a relationship with a fake made up name for a Fortune 500 company? Like, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, if that's all I can have, then okay, fine. But like, really? Like that's my emotional affinity? Like that's just how I'm going to kind of process things. Yeah. Uh, if, if in the alternate, I now have a different kind of relationship I can have. And these are, this is what they refer to as a psychologist call a parasocial relationship. If I could actually know instead, no, like actually I have a relationship with, you know, I love Ryan Reynolds movies or, you know, I love Deadpool or I love Kim Kardashian, you know, reality yeah. TV, or I love, you know, whoever, you know, what, whatever that is. Or I love Mr. You know, my, <laughs> my, my kid loves yeah. Mr. Beast, right? Like he's like, you know, his, yeah. his like number one role model in the world, right? Um, and so, but yeah, you know, you can still say, look, is it a real relationship if it's not a two-way relationship? But you can also say, look, it's like a person, right? Uh, yeah. it's, it's a relationship yeah. with a person. And so maybe in the future, you know, maybe we're at the beginning of what is a monster wave and we'll, you know, be sitting here 20 years from now and it will turn out this was basically the great transition and in the future, the brands will actually all be individually uh, led. Uh, ben, what do you, uh, what do you think of that? You know, I, I think that's probably right. It just got, has me thinking back. Probably the original case of this was um, the Air Jordans, right. where, right. you know, uh, sneakers were always Converse or uh, Adidas or what have you. And then Michael Jordan signed this contract with Nike, which was kind of like a distant, whatever, third in basketball shoes or maybe fourth. And, you know, that shoe, he... He negotiated, his mother negotiated for the first time ever a piece of the back end in exchange for the shoe being called Jordan, <laughs> um, which was, you know, it was Michael Jordan. I, I bought Michael Jordan and that worked amazingly. And it's sort of, 
you know, it's been a slow evolution, massively accelerated by social media to get kind of all the way to what people really wanted, which is a relationship with the person who wears the shoe, not a re with the, the company that makes the shoe. Um, and we see this on, on social media in a, in a pretty big way, right? In, like Andreessen Horowitz is our firm, but like you and I have way more Twitter followers than Andreessen Horowitz does um, because <laughs> like, like what is the firm, you know, what is that compared to, you know, who do, who do you want the actual relationship with is, is kind of obvious. I think that the exciting thing to me, you know, kind of getting back to the question is, oh, now the economics are actually changing. So rather than it being, you know, a Nike shoe with like a small percentage to Michael Jordan on the back end or, or a good percentage at whatever it was, right. you know, it's Kim Kardashian owns Skimps. Right. Like that's her company. Right. Um, and so I think that's a, you know, quite a positive evolution in the way brands work, I think. Um, just because it should, <laughs> you know, the value should go to the, person that, I mean, th th this is kind of true in all the kind of creative world, you'd really like more of the value to go to the creative and less to manufacturing and distribution. Right. Um, and historically, all the money's gone to manufacturing and distribution and very little to, or a tiny amount to the creative. And uh, that, you know, and you all kinds of stories about that, but like this seems like a clearly better world, at least in my view. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, all right, it was, uh, very good question. Um, next question is from Gabriel. What happens when the cost of AI goes to zero? Will startups benefit more than corporations? This is a very good question. One that we ask ourselves often. Yeah, so maybe we could start just by saying, look, there's like a huge debate in the industry and in our firm. Um, and, you know, other people may have figured this out, but no, like we, we still debate it. <laughs> um, uh, is, you know, does basically like is like there's one version of the world in which you have a small number of what we sometimes call God models, um, which are these like super big, you know, GPT, you know, just visualize GPT-8 or something like that, um, where it's like this super model in the sky running on this super, you know, millions of processors, you know, with billions or hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of CapEx and training, you know, investment kind of behind it. Um, and, you know, there's like a monopoly or oligopoly of these companies. And, you know, but everybody uses the God models just because they give better answers on everything. Um, and you know, that that's like, it's sort of the equivalent of the world of search that we've been in for the last, you know, basically 20 years, um, you know, sort of a, an oligopoly, uh, thing where the, you know, the search companies extract a lot of the economics in the startup ecosystem through the advertising. Um, so, you know, that's one scenario. There's another scenario where basically it, the, it's sort of a, it's sort of what they, you know, sometimes call a race to the bottom, which is no, actually what happens is intelligence commoditizes. Um, and it just turns out that there are going to be a set of techniques that you use to, you know, get create large language models. And there's going to be a set of techniques you use to, like, you know, gather and and uh, and and, tr and uh, training data. Or there's going to be a set of techniques, you know, that you maybe use to synthesize training data, um, right? And so maybe you have like the old AI train the new AI. Um, and then, in, you know, in that scenario, it, it's like a, basically a race to zero. Uh, so the, the the cost of AI basically drops to zero, and, and you know, the, and the analogy there would be maybe what's happened in the microchip market, right? Which is, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, like what does a microchip cost? You know, well, a, a really good one costs you know a few thousand dollars, but you know, there's companies like ARM that sell them for pennies, um, and you can put a microchip in anything, and it's super cheap, and everybody does it. Um, or the internet, or the internet, the internet. Access is very cheap for everybody. Yeah, that's right. Like, what is it, right? What does it cost to put yeah. what does it cost to put TCP/IP into something, right? Um, and have it be on the internet. And it turns out the answer is basically pennies. 
Um, right. Um, and I mean, to the point where like, you know, literally I now have coffee mugs that are internet connected, right? Like, you know, what, yeah. you know <laughs> like, right. And so, um, you know, look, and, and, and there's, there's like this, like amazing, you know, there's all these like amazing philosophical questions kind of wrapped in that around like, what is the nature of intelligence? And, and there's this, how high is up question, which is how smart can, can things get, but, um, you know, and, and so forth. But, um, you know, it, it, like, you know, push comes to shove. My guess is it's that second scenario. My guess basically is what we're about to see is something a lot like the microchip or the internet, where you're going to have actually, you know, billions of AIs running around, uh, sort of with, you know, district, like a pyramid, you know, industry configuration where, you know, you'll have just a, you'll have a giant plurality of AIs that are on the smaller, cheaper end that will be doing all kinds of, you know, kind of localized functions. Um, and you'll be able to, you know, basically summon intelligence at some level into any application you need for, you know, basically very cheap or ultimately basically the same as free. Um, and then, you know, you'll have the God models in the background when you need like the super genius, but like for most things, you don't actually need a super genius. Um, and so yeah. I, th I think, it, I, I do think it's actually like a re I have, it's, it goes, it's, a, it's a reasonable expectation, um, that basically intelligence is going to be something that's going to get built into everything. Um, and then, Ben, yeah. yeah, why don't you speculate from there on then what that means for, like, the economics of Yeah, you, you, you know, it, it's interesting. I think it's partly a um, technological question in that, right, what is the asymptote? Like, how, <laughs> like, when things that get to what point of intelligence does the um, technology just commoditize and be available to everyone? And then, you know, and then kind of around the edges, is it like one intelligence or is it many, many different kinds of in, in different models? Like right now we have very different models for generating images than we do for uh, language and, and you know, other things. So, you know, does that stay fragmented or does it consolidate around a single architecture? I think those are important technological questions, but then there's an industry structure question, um, which, you know, I think is very important, which is, you know, is open source legal? Right. Um, does, you know, does uh, crypto and blockchain help decentralize the data question? Um, are there kind of forces, <laughs> what I would call forces for good, forces for humanity um, that can counteract the forces for giant corporations being like our literal tech overlords, you know, as they are on, you know, some of the current internet services. And, uh, and I think that, you know, that's probably the most important policy question that people are getting caught up in this other question of, uh, you know, safety and alignment. But the more important question, I think, is probably open source and decentralization. Yeah. So uh, a cynic, a cynic would say, <laughs> a cynic would say that the A number one reason why a big company would be lobbying aggressively to try to get basically government regulatory protection um, is if internally they are convinced that it's going to be a race to the bottom. Yep. <laughs> yep. Cynically, they would. <laughs> Cynically, a cynic would say that, right? Because because if you knew you had it right, if you knew you were headed to a Google, yeah. you know, sort of a search industry outcome thing where you were going to have like a natural monopoly or oligopoly, you would need the government protection. But if you knew over yeah. time that it was going to commoditize and everything was going to go to zero, then you'd be racing to try to get a regulatory barrier constructed right now to prevent. Right, that you'd from run happening. to the government to to preserve your monopoly, right? right yeah, right. that's right. Yep. <laughs> Um, okay, so th this one I think is more appropriate for you, which is how will generative AI change public education? Uh, <laughs> so, so this is a long. Well, we need public education. <laughs> it's a long and complicated topic. Um, well, so public, I think public education, right? Is I'll try not to. I could spend the next six hours just on this topic, but um, uh, banging my shoe on the table, but um, 
I mean, look, the thing is, like, education in our society is as multi is an overloaded concept, right? It has it has multiple it plays multiple roles, right? Um, and so yeah. there's a you know, at the, at the base level, there's just like a daycare role, right? Which is, it's the place where kids go so yeah. their parents can go to work. Um, you know, there's like a socialization role. It's the place where kids learn how to, you know, deal with other kids for, for better or for worse. Um, uh, yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's a learning component to it, um, I, I am told, uh, allegedly. Um, although evidence on that is actually hard to come by. Um, so Brian Kaplan wrote a great book on that. Um, yeah. uh, uh, and then there's, um, you know, sort of a uh, certification um, you know, kind of aspect, which is like basically, can, you know, no. have you have you demonstrated a track record of you know sort of sustained effort such that somebody would want to hire you, um, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's there's an, there's an enormous like what's called sheepskin premium in the in the in the employment markets, which is um, somebody who's a semester away from graduating high school or college does not make you know seven eighths of what a graduate makes. You know, um, he makes half yeah. of what a graduate makes, yeah. right? And right. so you know, there's there's this clearly the bar thing. I graduated high school. I graduated college, which which seems to count a lot for employers. Um, and then I would say fifth, there's like a social, ethical, moral, patriotic. You know, there's like a programming. You know, there's the in culture. You know, oh, right, 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 right. And indoctrination, component. indoctrination, the madrasa component. component, the madrasa right, component. Sure. And you know, when I was in school, it was you know basically like you know there was a, probably more patriot, you know, probably more like you know American, like here's how the American government works, here's why democracy is good, pledge of allegiance, pledge of allegiance, like all that stuff. And then you know, more recently, maybe they're focused on other things. But you know, these days they would you know use use other have other concepts, other terms. Um, but it's this kind of like, and, you know, and again, without, without applying a value judgment here, it's like basically what, how, yeah, basically what, how do we, how are we acculturating? Uh, how are we basically training up, uh, uh, you know, citizens, um, uh, of our country, um, to basically be, be, be good citizens for whatever the definition is at that time of what it means to be a, uh, a good citizen. And so the, the, it's, it's like this bundled set. And so it's the, the thing with the question of like, how is AI going to affect it is it's because the, the, the answer you'd like to give is, oh, AI is going to make it so much easier for everybody to learn things. But it, but it, and actually, the, the more humble way to approach the question is like it turns out learning things is actually a, like not necessarily that large of a component of that bundle. Um, yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, is before that reason that you would probably say, wow, it, it's unlikely that there's like some big fundamental restructuring of education, because even if you're even if AI is like a dramatic change in how people learn things, like even if everybody in the future has an AI tutor and they don't need to wait for their teacher to explain things anymore, like that still doesn't that doesn't affect the, that doesn't necessarily affect the other parts of of. Uh, 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 of the bundle. Uh, now, yeah. I think what you could say is like, look, on the margin, like, you know, this should be good for students and then all of a sudden, you know, and I, you know, you see this with kids today, all of a sudden every kid is going to have a, a tutor who knows basically everything about everything and then has infinite patience, um, you know, to be able to um, explain things. I'll just give you, for people who haven't tried this, it's worth trying. Do, you know, do something like the following is go to ChatGPT and basically say, um, do the following queries. Um, explain, you know, quantum mechanics to me like I'm a PhD in physics. Explain quantum mechanics to me like I'm an English major in college. Explain quantum mechanics to me like I'm in eighth grade. Explain quantum mechanics to me like I'm in third grade. Yeah. Explain quantum mm -hmm. mechanics to me as if I'm a toddler. And, and what you find is it actually can do all of those things. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so um, it, it can it can it can it's really, really it's exactly the kind of thing that it's really, really good at. And so it, 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 it has the ability to meet you wherever you are in your learning journey. Right. Uh, and there's going to be, you know, there's Khan Academy and others are working on this right now to apply it to education. There's going to be like amazing educational online tutoring yeah. and, and learning, you know, kind of things that come from that. You know, and so students are gonna, like at the very least, students are going to have that as sort of a release valve if they find themselves in a setting where they don't understand what's happening or the teacher's not very good or the teacher's always distracted or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think that's my general answer of public education, which is probably changes less than less than I would hope. 
But look, there's the other thing though, which is like, look, there, there, there always are a small set of students who are like really um, high potential. Um, and, you know, in the old days, you'd have a gifted and talented program or you'd have AP courses. You know, the most progressive school systems in the country right now are eliminating all that stuff for equity reasons. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, they're canceling calculus and algebra and AP courses like yeah. because of the uh, disparate impact differential outcomes. Um, and so, um, you know, like the best and brightest kids like are going to need a different approach um, and they're going to need a, a, a different track. Uh, and by the way. Historically, the best and brightest kids have always had a different track. There's always been some other track, like uh, the like uh, members of the uh, historical aristocracies didn't go to schools; they they were tutored right. by by sure. like yeah. by tutors, right? Like Alexander the Great was tutored by Aristotle, uh, right? Yeah. Um, and so, the, 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 tutor. what's that? Good tutor, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Nero Nero was tutored by Seneca. Um, that one worked less well. Um, <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, the Alexander the Great one worked out. So, <laughs> so. Um, so, uh, you know, look, I, you know, there are going to be some kids, um, you know, who are like super high potential, um, who are in the middle of nowhere and don't have access to like a fancy prep school or whatever, um, who are going to be able to basically learn, you know, college level materials starting when they're, you know, 10 or 12 or whatever, and be able to like just kind of race way ahead and teach themselves. That, that's never going to be the vast majority of kids, I don't think. But like for the like super high potential kids, like it, it, it may be that the outcomes, that their own personal education outcomes are, are like much, much better. Uh, on the other side yeah. of this. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and do you think uh, that AI could lead to the either unbundling or restructuring of the education bundle, or that's less likely? It could. The, pr- the problem is, like, you know, just take public education in the U.S., like, you know, public K-12, like, it's not... It's not run primarily for the students, right? Like, specifically there, it's the teachers. You know, they, they, you know it's modern, I don't think it's controversial. They modern K through twelve systems run primarily for the teachers and specifically for the teacher unions, which are tremendously politically powerful. You know, to, to, yeah. to the point where, like, you know, school district, you know, famously, like the New York City school district can't fire bad teachers, right? Like, they 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 finally right. came up with this uh, what they call the rubber room or whatever it is, where they and they, and they shut down charter schools and all that kind yeah, of yeah, absolutely, right? yeah. The teachers unions mount these wars on charter schools, like they're just absolutely terrified mm-hmm. of having competition. And so there, there's this, there's this, there's you know, for better or for worse, whatever. There's this, there's this other driver out there. Um, and so, and then look like the daycare thing, I, I think is actually like, you know, especially, you know, and, and, you know, if, if the, if the sort of modern economy is going to be, you know, two parent incomes, you know, which is kind of what's happened over time. Um, those are, those are, those are like, you know, those are real world problems that are not, you know, that, that are not directly addressed by technology. So that, that's why I'm probably, I'm probably uh, on the bearer side of like some sort of fundamental change there, but. Um, okay. So Promethean Cave asks, how soon before AI advancement allows all people to access their greatest untapped creativity? You know, that is certainly kind of, it's a great question and that that's going to be probably one of the big outputs of, uh, of AI is that, um, you know, anybody will be able to create in many ways. So if you have an idea, I mean, like there, there's kind of this, uh, David Bowie had this very interesting quote. I watched a doc on him recently. And he said, I'm not very into virtuosity. Um, meaning like, I, I don't ever want to be like the greatest guitar player in the world. That's not at all interesting to me. I'm interested in creativity. Um, and so AI kind of, I think, gives you in all kinds of creative dimensions, the ability to tap a virtuoso to kind of express your idea. Um, and that could be in you know music or writing or, or, or anything really. Um, and so I, I do think that that is um, 
coming and probably in the relatively short term, I would think in the next um, several years, where anybody with a very interesting creative ideas will be able to basically produce a fantastic movie or a song or a kind of piece of art. Um, and that's going to be, uh, you know, th th that'll be a great transformation. Yeah, you see there's a bunch of memes now, um, you know, just with like uh, Dolly and Midjourney for image generation, you know, the, the ability to use like basically art to the art is like expressive humor. Um, so the, the meme in the last week that's taken off is um, it turns out you can ask uh, you can ask the AI image generators to basically do sort of like basically be more dramatic uh, or more humorous in a certain direction. And so there have been a lot of examples yeah. of this, but one was just like there's a guy sitting at a his laptop and, uh, and a computer. And the, the thing is like, have him get, have each image, have him get like more and more excited about the potential for like civilian nuclear power. Um, and, yeah. and, right. And then, and then basically there's this whole sequence of images, uh, or you could have, you know, for that matter, you could have like somebody like you could have a bodybuilder and, you know, every, every, uh, you know, have him you know, get 10%, you know, bigger and stronger each time until he's finally like, yeah. you know, the incredible Hulk or like, well, whatever. There's a, a ton of people have had a ton of sure. funny ideas around this. And, and you can actually, now you can actually generate, you know, uh, you could, they actually generate the art, which just like looks absolutely spectacular. And it's like very entertaining you know, for people with actually no visual skills. Um, so that, that's just this week's example. But um, but yeah, look, like what you're describing is already happening with visual art. Uh, you know, it's already happening with with uh, with uh, 2D image generation. You know, the 3D stuff is coming really fast now. Um, and then, um, you know, it started obviously text. You know, there's a lot of people now able to generate poetry uh, with uh, ChatGPT who were certainly not able to before. Um, yeah. Right. Much better tool than a thesaurus. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, how, yeah, it, I, I don't know. You know, you, you never know. Like there, there's, there's a very big... Uh, there's a very big underlying question to all this, right? Which gets into the, which is when I find myself talking to people like in the entertainment industry about, which is because there have been people in the entertainment industry, like creators, professional creators of like art or movies or books or whatever, are very quick to say, well, of course, hey, I can never be creative like a person is. And, and on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, of course, that's the case. Because like there are certain particular creative super geniuses who clearly are doing something that like I can't do, right? I mean, just take your, whoever your favorite musician, David Bowie, like, I, you know, there's no way that you or I are ever going to be able to do what he was able to do. And so there's clearly no. something really special about the best creative geniuses in a field. And I would not be so presumptuous as to say technology can just quote unquote do that. Look, on the other hand, it's like, okay, what exactly is human creativity, right? Um, and like, how are humans creative? And how much of creativity is based on actually learning a lot about all the people who came before you, um, and then figuring out to kind of mix and match, you know, mix and match and, you know, create mashups and, and, and uh, synthesize new versions of the things that came before you. Um, and you know, how much of that can the machine do? And so, and then it's like, okay, maybe you can't be as good a musician as David Bowie, but like most musicians, musicians in history have never been as good as David Bowie. Maybe it's like 99% of the field of the field is something that I, yeah, I can do. Uh, yeah. And so there's all these like really interesting kind of philosophical questions around the nature of creativity, which I think we're going to, yeah, it's going to be a very good reason, reason to think about those. Yeah. 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 We're going to find out. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> that's the exciting part. Yes. Okay, Ferberit, I think that's how you pronounce it, <laughs> uh, asks, are data centers and other infrastructure in a position today to accommodate the growth of AI applications? Um, I, I can start with that. So I think that, the, that there's two really kind of important um, things lacking in most modern data centers today. Uh, one is power, interestingly. So the concentration of power needed to kind of run like the, to, to basically fulfill the demand of AI in any given data center is just insufficient um, by a fair amount. And so there's a lot of work going into, you know, everything from 
you know, portable nuclear power generation to like whole different power architectures and so forth. So that's a big thing. And I've heard that from all the kind of large um, data center providers, you know, power is probably the first thing they're going to run out of. The other one that that's come up and it's more in the kind of chip conversation. So if you look at GPUs, you know, NVIDIA is clearly the leader, but like one of their biggest advantages is they have a, you know, NVIDIA also owns a networking architecture called InfiniBand. And InfiniBand turns out to be like really, really important um, in AI, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of having the kind of GPUs being able to communicate at the, at the kind of, at an appropriate, um, with an appropriate latency and speed and so forth. Uh, and that is not available, you know, with chips from providers like, you know, AMD doesn't have InfiniBand and so forth. So the people who are able to kind of best exploit the other chip, chip architectures that are competitive with the NVIDIA chip architecture are ones who have amazing uh, data center networking technology. And so that's companies like, you know, a Google or a Meta or so forth. But so that that's lacking in like your run of the mill data center for sure. And uh, so those are probably the two uh, big things that that at least we talk about internally quite a bit is uh, networking and power. Yeah, Ben, like what like what's your sense of like are are the data centers and, you know, corresponding components, uh, chips and network interconnects and so forth. Uh, are they under like do we have half of what the industry would be using right now if it could or a tenth or. Like what's the what's the mismatch well, right now? I think, I think it's hard to know, right? Because so the the first bottleneck is just can I get the GPUs, yeah. and so I think we don't know yet. Yeah. Um, but I think that is so basically whatever everybody says is okay. Once we get the GPUs, then the next issue, if you're not using Nvidia, is going to be networking, and the next issue, if you are using anything, is going to be power. So that's that's a little bit how I think of it. So I I don't think there's a great estimate on. Um, you know, what we could be doing if those things were fixed because we're stuck on, like, we just don't have the GPUs right now. And then there's an implication of this, I think, which I think is actually a fairly bullish implication to it. The implication is basically the AI tools and their capability that you experience today as a user is a fraction of what is actually possible technologically today. In other words, like the, yeah. the bottleneck today for your experience using a lot of these systems is not the algorithms or the data. The bottleneck is quite literally the hardware and the power underneath it. Um, and so, mm -hmm. and, and that's, that, that would be a bullish observation of the state of AI as a field because basically says as these, as more chips and data centers and power are brought online, all of a sudden these systems are just going to get much better. Like, right, without any algorithmic changes, I think that's that's certainly true. Yeah, yeah. like there's there's basically improve there are functional improvements in the bag, um, uh, even without yeah. additional technology breakthroughs. Um, and then look, yeah. we, we see this every day in startup world. There's a lot of startups that just like quite literally can't launch, like they can't like actually build their thing yet because uh, they can't get these you know, physical components. Um, but yeah. the, but the, but the, the nature the nature of the chip industry and the nature of things like you know power data centers is this is you know it's mostly money. Um, and, yeah. and now there's a, a you know, motivation for a lot of people to invest a lot of money in resolving these shortages. And so I, 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 I would expect in the next few years, there will be this period of time where all of a sudden it'll be like Christmas just for the industry. It'll be like, oh, all of a sudden uh, we all have all the, you know, sort of equipment power we need. And then, and then that's when we're really going to see even what these systems can do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, I, I think that, I think that's definitely correct. And then, <laughs> It's hard to even imagine, you know, when when you get all the kind of 
GPUs power networking on the one side, and then you also have the algorithmic breakthroughs on the other side. It's going to be uh, yeah, right. a super exciting time. Yeah, One of the most exciting times in technology. <laughs> this is a great, I'm going to go right to this one. Zach asks, could AI replace governments in the future? <laughs> which, uh, which, do you want to bite that one off first? It's very provocative. Well, I mean, I think it kind of gets to the question is like, can AI replace kind of everything? Um, I think governments is, a, is an interesting one because it, it's kind of like, can AI govern people? Um, or, or, or can people govern AI is also another interesting question. Well, if I could, maybe I could break the question into two parts, which is there's, there's part of government, which basically is like the decisions being made by high officials. Um, yeah. But there's a separate part of government, which is just administration of bureaucracy. Yeah, well, I think you, so here's the, okay. So on that one, um, it's a little frustrating that AI has not replaced government on the bureaucracy side. So like, I'll just give you my favorite example, which is, you know, recently, uh, you know, we had this big, ridiculous political debate about whether or not we should hire 80,000 new IRS agents. Um, and the other way to solve that problem would be to basically hire six good, you know, AI engineers and basically be able to get perfect auditing of everybody's uh, tax result. And, you know, maybe even, maybe even, tell people what they owed <laughs> as opposed to making them guess and then arresting them if they guess wrong. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that we could improve the bureaucracy uh, with AI. Yeah, because it is weird. Like the concept of the government, the concept that the secretary of state and the person, you know, at the yeah. behind the counter at the DMV are the same, you know. They're, yes. <laughs> they're, the government is a little bit of a, a little bit of a, let's see. It's there, broad. Will come, there will come a time when okay. that will be viewed as a historical oddity. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, then look, no. like I would just make, make a more, more general observation, which is just like, look, if you look at, you can look at like measures of what you just might call administrative, sometimes people like administrative bloat, um, yeah. right? Which is basically, well, I'll, take, I'll pick on universities, right? So the, the, the high end universities, uh, places like Stanford, Yale, and so forth, they now have more administrators than they have students, right? Yeah. And so I don't think it's Stanford, I forget the exact numbers, it's something like 12,000 students and like 13,000 administrators. Right. And, and, and if you chart, if you chart the growth rate of students and administrators, the yeah. student body has grown somewhat and the administrator growth rate has just been off the charts. Like it's this, this, yeah. this, they never had this many in the past. Like it is, this is unprecedented. And the same thing is true of like many. And yet they've added zero capacity for students. Exactly. Right. Um, and so and so the, the, the running joke is, of course, you know, Stanford can now afford to have, you know, Stanford if the staffing model can switch and just have a personal concierge for each student. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That'd be the way to organize the university. Um, yeah. But um, and, and that's just I, I pick on them as a local local example. But like that, that's true of many many bureaucracies. Like so, for example, that's the story of a lot of the increase in the cost of healthcare uh, over the last twenty years. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is just the same thing has happened in hospitals. Right. It's not doctors and nurses. It's administrators. It's administrators exactly. And so and and you know you could look at that a couple different ways. You could look at that as just saying, look, I don't know the world. You know, I don't know the world. The economy gets more mature, and you just want things to run better and. You're, you're just you're going to have a lot more paperwork and it's just going to be the way it is. Um, you know, and then the other way you can look at it is, well, you know, no, the, the administrators are a class. You know, you could you can apply like Marxist analysis. You can say that the, the, the administrators are a class in and of themselves. They have a class interest. Uh, <laughs> the, right. The class yeah. interest is in the propagation of administrative jobs. 
Um, right. And so, you know, they're like coat hangers in the closet. They reproduce in the middle of the night. Like, and you're just yeah. gonna, you know, they're like left unchecked. You're basically going to have the entire economy, the entire world someday. Everybody's just going to have administrative jobs, uh, yeah. or, you know, what are what pejoratively sometimes called email jobs. Um, and you know, look like email jobs are great for the people who have them. It's always less clear that they're great for the customers. Um, right. Because of just this enormous cost bloat that kind of comes with it. Um, and so, you know, look, I, I, well, like, I know for sure, like a lot of, you know, for-profit corporations are, are already looking at this, you know, you know, increasingly aggressively, which is like, okay, how much of this administrative bloat, you know, how much, you know, like even on a reverse, even if we could use that to just reverse administrative bloat back to 10 years ago, right. There would be the opportunity for like pretty big change in both staffing models. And then, in, in you know, you could literally, you know, you could drop the cost of a lot of products and services. If you could take it back 20 or 30 or 40 years, even better. And if you could rethink the whole thing from scratch and maybe you just don't even need all these people doing all these you know, administrative jobs because you have AI doing it, then all of a sudden, you know, yeah. you can imagine a future in which a lot of products or services, the costs, you know, become, you know, a tenth of what they are today because um, you're just taking out all this overhead. Um, and so that's yeah. a, uh, you know, that's a, that for sure, I think, is one of the journeys that we're all going to be on is to try to is to try to figure that out, because that, that because that is. That is the kind of work. Like, can, can AI do a better job than the Secretary of State at like planning geopolitics? I don't know. Um, there are yeah. people I'm sure who would say yes. I'm not gonna. You know, yeah. who knows? Um, you know, can, it's your point. Can can AI run the IRS better? Yeah, almost certainly. Um, and so, um, yeah. you know, why why not at least give it a try? And maybe getting rid of the bureaucratic state or replacing it or improving it would be the key to dealing with our other like colossal problem, which is the deficit <laughs> issue. Um, which we're going to have to address at some point or or not, or it'll address us. We'll, we'll see. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, Ross Elliott asks, uh, what are your thoughts on AI being used to create new songs by mimicking deceased artists, such as Kirk Cobain or Amy Winehouse? Yeah. So you're the guy on this one. Yeah. So, you know, that's a very interesting question. So I think I'm, you know, like on the one hand, there's the, copyright issue where does um you know where does the money go does it go to the estate and so forth and like who controls the copyright and how that works and i think those like i think that i think ai needs to be like within the law on that um in a very kind of i would say strict way you have to respect the deceased artists on the other hand um you know, like it's, I think it'd be pretty neat for an artist to be so kind of profoundly important that they become immortalized and, you know, Amy Winehouse becomes, you know, the equivalent of a trumpet or like, you know, she becomes an instrument that many people can use into the future. Um, that would be like an amazing tribute to her and then also like pretty exciting for creatives everywhere. So, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of hope that we find a way to do that in a way that's, you know, respectful and gives credit where credit is due. I think it'd be very bad if, um, you know, people just stole her voice and use it for things. So, so let me ask you the downside version of the question, the dystopian view. And this is this is sort of this idea that the uh, that the, our, 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 my friend, the Lindy man has, uh, Paul Scalis, which is this idea mm -hmm. of stuck culture. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, in the observation, basically, is like in the movie industry, it's like there are basically no new movie stars, you know, past a certain point. Like, yeah, uh, you know, right. That we just sit on the old ones, yeah. Yeah, well, like Tom Cruise, you know, Tom Cruise is always a great example of this, right? Because like he, in the last, you know, two years, he's had this amazing, you know, these two amazing, huge movies, one in which he's a fighter pilot and the other in which he's like a secret agent. And like, you know, look, he's great in both of them, but like he's 60, right? Like, and like, you know, yeah. 
like in the old days, right? You know, you would have had 20, 20 year olds and 30 year olds in those roles. And now you've got a 60 year old and like, he's going to keep making yeah. these movies as long as people go to them. And so, Oh, it's like rock and roll. It's like rock and roll, even with just, you know, like the Rolling Stones still, you know, you can go yeah. see Mick Jagger at age 80. Right. Um, you know, is that like substituting for like going to see somebody, you know, uh, yeah. like Mick Jagger when he was 20 was not competing with 80 year olds. Right. Um, but the, the, yeah. the, the next new rock star is competing with, with, with 80 year old Mick Jagger. So anyway, so the, the, the dystopian kind of question would be, would, would version of the question would just be like, look, if you can basically, if you can literally like, re, you know, you see this today with like the Michael Jackson, you know, hologram concert and the ABBA, you know, kind of recreation concert and so forth. Frank Sinatra, like if, if you can literally like, you know, reanimate through holograms and voice synthesis and, you know, three, you know, 3D VR experiences and, you know, all these things, uh, visuals with impeccable, you know, production quality. And you could have, you know, Frank Sinatra and Michael Jackson and ABBA for the next hundred years um, with like enormous, you know, money and resources being put at kind of doing new creativity under their names and with their faces and likenesses and voices. Like, are, are you actually... Like, is that the end of creativity and music just because, like, at that point, you're, it's just basically everything becomes a nostalgia act forever? Yeah, so I don't think so because, um, you know, like, look, if you don't have a new novel way to do something or um, or create art, then, then sure, that's going to be better than what you do. But, like, if you look at hip-hop, you know, they kind of brought James Brown back to life um, you know, with samples and, but the music was all new and it created all kinds of new stars. And, and interestingly, they weren't even the James Brown records that were hits. They were all the stuff that he did kind of post his peak, um, ended up being the things that, that, that people wanted to kind of reuse in, in the samples. So it was both kind of a rebirth of, you know, a lot of the James Brown music that nobody had ever heard. And then it was, you know, a whole new, class of music, a whole new art form. Uh, so I think, I guess I would say, I think that this idea is kind of independent of the dead culture idea, which, um, uh, you know, and I, I would be like, I would definitely take a more positive view. I, th I think it could be actually kind of exciting. Postmodern, a new postmodern uh, artistic endeavor. Awesome. All right. Um, <clears throat> Ah, this is a good, we have a techno-optimist question from Wayne Altman. Is the issue of the, a growing wealth gap in society solved through techno-optimism? Or is it possible that, well, positive sum, and this is an interesting question, um, be just the way it's phrased. <laughs> well, positive sum technological innovations increase quality of life for everyone, the wage gap continues to grow, or does it? And this leads to serious issues later on, question mark. Yeah. So look, a couple of preconditions for having this conversation that are very important. So, um, you know, there's, there's, there's two mm -hmm. concepts, right? There's sort of uh, absolute, uh, like, uh, income growth, standard of living growth, um, and then there's relative, right? Um, and, you know, like, like, it's possible for technology to both be making everybody's lives better and yet also leading to increased inequality. Like, like both of those are actually possible. Um, and, yeah. and there's a version of the argument that says at that point, you shouldn't be worried about inequality because if everybody's lives are getting better, then it's, everything is better and you should just like keep getting <laughs> better. And then there's, but like, you're dealing with humans. So that, that, that's, that's a difficult thing. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely because you're dealing with human beings, it turns out relative, relative status matters and people get really mad about that. So, um, so, 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 so that's yeah. one, but it's important to think about, um, so that's one thing. Um, uh, let's just, let's just set that as like a, put a, put a pin in that cause we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, 
then there's this question of like, okay, the, the actual nature of like wealth and uh, the nature, uh, the actual nature of sort of uh, income and, and and the standard of living that kind of flows from income, um, right? Which is it's like income is a proxy for standard of living, right? Income is a proxy for the things you can buy yeah. that make your life good, uh, you know, for yourself and your family and your community. So 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 there's there, so income is like the input, and then standard of living is like the the, the output. Um, the interesting thing, there's one really interesting thing, which is um, the the cost of goods and services really matters. Uh, right, because if if I if I have to spend a hundred dollars to buy something, um, and then um, but then there's something that is as good or better that costs ten dollars a year from now, like that's the equivalent to getting a, a ninety dollar raise, right? Because like the thing that I had to spend a hundred dollars on now, I only have to spend ten dollars on now. That frees up ninety dollars of spending power, and it's it's, yep. it's equivalent of a ninety dollar raise. And so basically, what I'm saying is there's like two ways to actually raise income, and therefore raise standard living. One is to pay people more money. <laughs> by the way, I mean, I'm in favor of that. And by the way, we do a lot of that uh, in our yeah. day jobs. Um, and then, but the other thing to do is to drop the cost of the goods and services that they're buying, um, which from a standard of living standpoint is actually the exact same outcome. Um, and right. so a, 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 a major force and lever economic effect that technology innovation has on the economy uh, is driving down prices. Um, and so, and, you, and we could we could cite many, many, many examples of, of how that's the case. I mean, there's just like really obvious ones, like television sets that you could just pick on, like very easily. Um, you know, and you can just like watch the price declines over time, which are the direct consequence of technological innovation. The same is true, by the way, for lots of it's been true of media and, and, and lots and lots of things that people buy uh, over the last you know 20 or 30 years. And so there, there there's part of this which basically says you should be a techno optimist, e even if the only outcome from it um, is a systematic way to drive prices down. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that's one side of it and very important to think about. Um, um, and, then, um, and then there's the other side of it, which is the, the question of how wages are set in the economy. And um, the, the sort of the folk, you know, kind of standard default way that people think about that is wages are set in this kind of battle between the employee and the employer. Um, and there's like this fixed amount of money. Right. And either the workers get it or the or the capitalists get it. Right. Or either labor gets it or management gets it. And, you know, this is kind of the point of view of every union. Right. It's just this. Yeah. It's, this it's fighting over this kind of zero sum, zero sum pie. And, you know, economists look at this with things like the what they call like the labor to capital ratio where they, you know, the percentage of, of income that, you know, for a business that goes to labor versus capital and so forth. Um, but. That's not actually, I mean, that's how, so this is how wages get set in a union negotiation. This is not how wages get set in the economy broadly. Um, the way wages yeah. get set in the economy broadly is as a function of what's called the marginal productivity of the worker. Uh, it's a function of the economic value that the worker brings to an employer. Um, and the reason why wages rise is not because employers are generous and they want to pay people more money. The reason wages rise is because if you are an employer and you are underpaying a worker relative to the amount of economic value they're bringing to the business, they will quit and they will go to an employer that will pay them fairly, right? Uh, because there's, there's an arbitrage. The other employer will hire them and pay them more because it's still worth hiring them because there was a, there was, there was, you know, there was, there were, there was a hundred dollar bill on the ground, which is like a worker who was being underpaid relative to his contribution. And so the, right. the way wages get set is as a function of marginal productivity. And then the big driver for how productive workers are is the technology that they use, right? Yeah. And so an accountant who has a calculator is much more productive than an accountant who doesn't. An accountant who has a PC is much more productive than the accountant who has a calculator. And then the accountant that has an AI is going to be much more productive than the accountant who just has a PC. And so yeah. as technology gets introduced into industries, one of the really big things that it does is it drives up the marginal productivity of the workers. And so technology right. is not the enemy of the worker in most of these cases. In most of these cases, it's actually the ally of the worker in actually causing the worker's marginal productivity to rise, therefore causing the, 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 the worker's income to rise. And so and this is my argument in the, in the, in the Techno Optimist Manifesto, which is these effects of 
technology driving up uh, the marginal productivity of the worker and therefore driving up income while simultaneously driving down the prices of goods and services is just th these two factors are so massive in increasing quality of life that all of the other concerns and debates around, you know, this and that inequality and fairness or whatever just kind of wash out because th those, those fundamental mechanisms are so powerful um, that, they actually, that they actually drive most of the outcomes. And I, I would argue that, you know, we have 300 years of history to confirm this now and the reason that we're sitting here today in, you know, uh, 2023 with like, you know, standards of living that are unparalleled by any kind of human precedent, uh, civilizational precedent, um, you know, is sort of evidence that, that, that these mechanisms work. This sounds too good to be true. People kind of have a very kind of often visceral negative reaction to good news um, of this kind. But, you know, like if this resonates with you at all as you're listening to it, like this, this is this is like standard economics. Like the, this is the, the, the basically the great moral virtue of, of, uh, of, uh, of free markets, which is this is the mechanism by which actually um, free markets are a non-zero sum. Uh, non-zero-sum game, and, and, and there actually is a rising tide, and, and, and I think, and, and then therefore more technology innovation will make all that work better as opposed to worse. All right, that is, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna leave it at that because that was good. Um, and then the final techno-optimist question for us, uh, how do you assess the future economic and technological growth potential in the Middle East, particularly in light of initiatives such as the line in Saudi Arabia urban developments like Dubai and the progress in countries like Qatar. Uh, so, you know, it's pretty interesting. I think that the thing that we're seeing in the Middle East is a very, very strong will among um, the governments there to kind of want to build towards the future. Uh, and particularly, I think, led by Saudi Arabia, I think they're, um, you know, I could not be more committed to a kind of better, more technologically advanced future. And, um, and basically, rather than the government um, being a kind of regulator and protector against what that future might be, uh, being more of an enabler and a funder of what that future is. And so that's where you get things like the line. I, I was just in Riyadh and there was... Um, a, uh, th there was a big fight uh, Tyson Fury was fighting and they had built a whole soccer arena um, for that, you know, that that fight was held in and it was to build the entire thing was three months. Um, and, you know, like that obviously could never happen anywhere in the United States. And, uh, and so I think it's a very, you know, in my view, it's an incredibly positive development because if you've kind of studied the Middle East, you know, one of the really tough things, which, you know, led to 9-11 and, you know, was certainly a big factor um, kind of recently, you know, is a big factor, you know, in the recent conflict is that you have um, kind of modern society. And I think, you know, people in, in the 9-11 context referred to it as like the Jetsons versus the Flintstones and, and this kind of thing. Um, and, you know, if you've got a big part of the world going into the future, and then, you know, particularly in the Middle East, there's a big part of the world that is, you know, in the pretty far past, kind of culturally, religiously, women's rights-wise, et cetera, um, you know, that, that is a natural conflict. And so it's incredibly positive to see really the leading Middle Eastern countries like Saudi going, you know, where not only joining the future, we're leading the future. And so I think that, that that may be one of the best things that's happening in the entire world right now. Yeah. 
And then, you know, look, I think you can kind of see this, you can kind of take a historical lens in this too, which is basically like, look, we, we've been, you know, we, we in the, we in the West and around the world have been trying to kind of make kind of modern, you know, kind of democratic, you know, kind of industrial capitalism work for the last, you know, kind of few hundred years. And, and, and one of the sort of patterns that I think is very clear and, and has been the case in, in a lot of places around the world, and especially in the last like 30 years, um, is, you know, basically like there's a lot of latent talent out there. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who like are actually quite smart and have like ideas and, 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 um, you know, have the potential to build businesses and the potential to, you know, play a bigger role in their, in their communities and in industries, you know, than they've had a chance to in the past. Um, and you don't need necessarily like, you don't need to like, I don't know, become Singapore or like, or something overnight. Like you, you don't need to, you don't need to have the like most amazingly advanced economy in the world to have people be able to really uh, be, be, be much better off, like in one step. Um, what, what you can do quite literally is just like, you know, give people, and I've been thinking particularly here, like a bunch of Asian countries in the last, in the last you know, 30, 40 years, even former, you know, former communist countries, um, uh, you know, we're basically, it's like, okay, if all of a sudden people can actually like function in a market, you know, have a true market economy, can actually like bid their labor out to, you know, multiple employers, as opposed to everything being owned by the state. Um, if you can, if it's actually possible to start new businesses that introduce a competitive dynamic, um, if it's possible, um, by the way, policy, if it's possible for, uh, uh, uh people to actually be able to change jobs. Um, you know, there's hmm. even a discrepancy in the U.S. between the states in which you can actually restrict employee, employee, employees on non-compete agreements and, and the ones where you can't. Um, yeah. and so, so, and so there's, and then if people can like use new technology and they're, they're actually allowed to use new technology and it's not blocked by the government. Um, right. Um, and, and then, or, um, uh, you know, or that they're, um, you know, or technology is introduced earlier into the educational process. Right. Or, um, you know, or all of a sudden you can have new kinds of financial services. You can have new kinds of, you know, capital available. You can have lending new kinds of debt instruments available, or you can have a stock market in a country that didn't previously have one. Like all, all, all of these things are basically like steps along the road. Uh, to what you might call sort of modern, mo modern, modern capitalism, uh, modern market economy. And it basically turns out in the data, I think basically is every single one of those steps pays off, right? Like basically every step of the way there's improvement on the margin. Um, and then if you take like 30 or 40 or 50 of those steps, you basically end up like Singapore. Um, you end up just like with this, just like amazing, what, what looks like a miracle uh, of like, yeah. you know, of, of sort of modern, you know, sort of market-based industrial civilization. Um, and so, like, you know, contra all the bad news in the world, it is striking how many countries in the last 30 years have kind of been walking down this path um, and I think doing doing yeah. very well with it. Um, and then, of course, you know, look, if you can move even faster, so much the better. Um, and so, if you you know, if you actually have like fully enlightened leadership that really wants to wants to do this and really, you know, cares about their people and really wants to do their economies to advance, like you, you can do these things much more quickly. Um, it is, you know, amazing how, you know, everybody inequality, it's amazing how still unequal the world is on a lot of these things. Um, like I said, or even, even in the U S there's a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. different, different regions have very different dynamics in terms of whether people actually have the ability to reach their full potential. Um, but you know, y you don't need perfection. You just need to like take the boot. You just need to like, boot like if, yeah, I'm just thinking like the common, former communist countries, like you like this, you know, this is a big, a big part of the story of China over the last 30 years is you just need to take like Mao's boot off their throat. And all of a sudden it turns yeah. out that like China's full of entrepreneurs. And then all of a sudden it turns out there's like explosive economic growth, um, and a yeah. dramatic rise in income. Like it, it didn't, they didn't need, like, they just need to let people do their thing. They didn't need to do anything. Right, 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 right. Yeah. They, right. Exactly. Now, you know, yeah. now that now they're getting into the more complicated part of it. And so there's a bunch of other other issues. But like a, a lot of it was to just like let people actually trade and transact and work um, and use technology and bring in ideas from the outside and so forth and so on. And so there's just I, I just have this like very fundamentally long run optimistic view about the world, which is we, we, we are still as a as a you know country and as a society and as a civilization 
and as a planet, we're, we're still under punching our weight relative to what the people uh, on, on planet Earth are capable of. And I think we, we, we actually have a path where a lot more people can contribute and, and everybody can become much better off. Yeah, 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 no question. All right, uh, with the next question is a crypto question from Carl. Do you see recent crypto scandals, parentheses like FTX, leading to more government regulations in the cryptocurrency space? Yeah. Uh, I will start with that. Um, so it turns out that in uh, crypto, um, probably the best thing that can happen to the space is uh, actual regulation, <laughs> um, as opposed to what's been going on, which is sort of rogue uh, government agency enforcement um, and non-enforcement of various things. So crypto is, a, you know, I'd say one of the most important, if not the most kind of important technological breakthrough um, that will lead us to, you know, hopefully a, a, a fair, better, more productive, more entrepreneurial, more techno-optimistic society in that it decentralizes um, these very uh, powerful monopolies um, in a way that kind of allows the people who are contributing value to kind of uh, be rewarded economically for their contribution. And this is in all kinds of areas, such as, you know, in the creative field right now, like your creative work um, that you do, uh, you know, the take rate from the, the big social media companies or from Google search is, you know, they take all the money. <laughs> the take rate is everything. So you create, you know, the most uh, amazing content um, and it lives on their platform and they get all the money or, you know, whatever, 99% of the money, whatever it is, it's a giant amount. Um, and so crypto is a kind of a way to really change that for the much better, uh, you know, where most of the take rate goes to the creator and not to the, not to the distribution kind of arm. Um, so very, very important. Now, the problem with crypto or a challenge with crypto is that uh, because of the nature of it, you know, you can use it to build these amazing services that provide like, you know, true rewards to all of the, you know, people who are customers and who are stakeholders and who are like everybody who participates in the network gets rewarded. Um, but you can also use it to basically just create a casino. Um, and, you know, a, uh, a place to gamble, which is what Sam Bankman-Fried did. He created a giant casino and, uh, you know, and then on top of that committed fraud. Uh, so, you know, and the way he was able to do it and get away with it is that the regulation of this brand new technology, which needs, you know, specific re regulation to outlaw this casino behavior that he had in creating this, you know, this coin, this FTX coin um, that ended up, that he valued at like dramatically higher than it which really should have been valued in all these kind of behaviors that he did. Um, there's a very easy regulatory answer to that um, that we don't have. And so I think that we need high quality regulation at the space. And then we need the regulators to stop, you know, behaving like in this weird random way where, you know, they're treating uh, kind of things, they're treating everything very genetically, generically, you know, based on kind of regulatory uh, ideas from the 30s, um, from the 1930s, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, not really relevant for this kind of brand new technology. 
And so, you know, I think we're hopeful that kind of FDX kind of alerts the, you know, the, the, the really good policymakers, which it has, and, you know, people on both sides of the aisle uh, to kind of put in place sensible uh, regulation for crypto, which will kind of unlock this, uh, you know, really a much better world for all of us. Um, so anyway, um, hopefully this, you know, turns out to be the, the bad thing that turns into the good thing. All right. Uh, next question. Um, uh, how have your views on crypto changed over the past five years? And I would say, uh, so I'll start with that one too. Um, I don't think that they've changed much other than uh, kind of both the importance of, you know, kind of proper regulation, uh, I, I think, at least in my view, is dramatically more clear. And then the kind of danger of, of, of not having it and having regulatory agencies, you know, treat like a token that could be everything from a Pokemon card to a stock certificate, um, you know, treating every token as a stock certificate. Uh, you know, it'd be, it's kind of like weird. And there was a really funny um, exchange between uh, Congressman Richie Torres uh, and Gary Gensler, where Congressman Torres said, well, like, is a Pokemon card a security? And Gary Gensler says, of course not. And he says, well, is a tokenized Pokemon card a security? And Gary Gensler said, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, and so, like, that's how, like, goofy the regulatory state is. And as a result, what happens is, you know, in the lack of clarity, you have these scamsters, casinos, criminals um, taking advantage of the kind of fuzzy nature of it. And then the real entrepreneurs who are trying to improve the world are kind of uh, hamstrung uh, by the lack of clarity. So um, that, that's probably the biggest thing that's kind of changed for me in the last five years. Yeah. I would just say also, look, the other thing that happens, so we've seen this across, you know, kind of repeated so-called crypto winters, is the other thing that happens, and this happens in every other area of tech also, by the way, and sort of things, you know, sort of the waves ebb and flow, um, is, um, you know, there's often a sort of, you know, when there's sort of a reduction of kind of enthusiasm or press coverage or something, um, and a reduction in hype, basically what happens is like the, the actual engineers keep working. Um, and so, yeah. and right, and the actual entrepreneurs keep building their businesses. Um, and so the way that we at least always think about these things is, you know, basically when in doubt, go look at the substance. Um, and the substance here is like, what are the, what are the really smart engineers and entrepreneurs doing? Um, and then what you basically get is you get this period, you know, this actually happened with the internet in the early two thousands, um, after the dot-com crash yeah. where a lot of people, you know, if you just read the press coverage, it was like the internet's dead. It was the whole thing was stupid the whole time. Um, what actually happened was like a lot of really smart people at a lot of companies, you know, including companies like Google and Amazon and others right, and new companies like Facebook, <laughs> like they just kept working. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then it turned out, you know, five years later, it was like, wow, like there's all these like amazing new ideas and like, you know, and you know, in that yeah. case it was like broadband and mobile broadband and smartphones and this and social media and, you know, kind of on and on and on yeah. and all this stuff. And it's like, wow, where did, where did all that stuff come from? And it's like, well, that's what the smart people were doing when, when everybody else, you know, thought that <laughs> when the internet was dead, when yeah. the internet was dead. Right. Um, and so yeah. I, I think that that is just, I, I've just, I've always viewed that as just like so much of how this industry works. Uh, the hype comes and goes. The the substance is what matters, and I just you know we 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 get to in our day jobs, you know obviously spend a lot of time with uh, you know many of the best crypto entrepreneurs and engineers, and I I just the projects that I'm seeing are incredibly exciting. So uh, I'm uh, I, I feel very good about that. Yeah, 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 no doubt, no doubt. All right, um, here's a here's actually this is a good one for you. Um, it was probably a good one for me too, but uh, uh, Evan uh, Tobinfeld asks. 
What was your last strongly held belief that you've changed your mind on and why? God, there, are, <laughs> there are so many. Let's pick a, pick a domain. I don't know. What domain should we talk about? Like, Well, how about on, how about on AI? That's a good question. I mean, look, there's just a, there's a lot of stuff. Right? So we talked about this earlier with this kind of question about you know kind of the God models versus you know the 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 Google mo- you know, sort of search model versus the internet model or something. It's just just like look, there's some just really big open questions right now. Like honestly, for a lot of the AI stuff, I'm trying to not actually draw judgments, um, just because the field is like flying so fast, um, it's moving so fast, and I, I yeah. you know there there are. It is. I find it very exciting, but it is amazing how many of the most fundamental questions have really smart people right now on both sides. Um, and yeah. so, you know, there are very smart people who are saying things like, well, you know, I'll give you an, a, a bunch of examples. There are a bunch of very smart people saying, look, LLMs are way overhyped. Um, it's basically, they're basically just like fancy search engines. Um, they're basically, yeah, they can recombine existing information, but they can't actually understand anything. They can't reason, they can't plan, they can't this, they can't that. And this this idea of like an emergent, basically what they call the world model and an emergent kind of uh, generalized, you know, basically capability inside them is basically a mirage. And then there are papers you can read where it's basically like, yeah, whenever these things perform well on tests, it's because the, the content of the test is in the training data. And so they're just like regurgitating the training data back at you. Uh, look, there are other extremely smart people, including people I've talked to just this week who are like, oh, no, like, no, no, no. Like what's happening inside the neural networks is actually like the development of entirely new computational capabilities, including full reasoning skills. And, you know, and then you layer in, you know, this is the excitement around the QSTAR thing. And other advances like this, you layer in some of these new advances and you're going to have like capabilities. You know, I mean, look, Elon was just on stage and said, you know, AGI within three years, you know, based on the current based on the current technology track. Um, and so like like, you know, like like if, if that's that if that's as big as a question as it is, then like all the sub questions underneath that are also likely to be, you know, kind of very open questions. Yeah. Um uh, yeah, you know, there's another one, just like the synthetic data thing. Like, you know, is synthetic data? We we actually, uh, I have a I have a very very important high stakes bet with our partner Martin Casado. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. We have bet the uh, princely sum of one dollar um, on, on on the following question, which is like, does synthetic data is synthetic training data actually useful for training large language models? And um, and you know the the the, the con argument um, is um, sort of. It's sort of an information theory argument, which is uh, synthetic training data is sort of necessarily downstream of sort of, you know, human training data. Um, you know, so, and so it's just going to be a recombination of signal that's already present in the training data. Um, and so therefore it can't add any value. And then there's a lot of smart people now who are including recent research papers on the other side of that saying, no, actually, synthetic training data works as well as and maybe better than human training data. Um, and the argument there would just be like, look, just look at the output. The output of a GPT-4 query or the output of a mid-journey image generator is often actually better than what most people can do. Um, yep. And so why wouldn't it be better than the human training data? Um, and like, so that's still an open question. So I, I'm, I'm trying to, yeah, I don't know. This is a, a incredibly long and winding way to dodge the question. But, um, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, it's like, I don't know, like beliefs. I, I'm fine. I don't know. As I get older, I find beliefs seem to seem to be less and less important. And um yeah. Well, I, I think that's actually the probably the biggest lesson, right, is to not um, to, to give up on the need for consistency. Like once you let go of that, you become much, much smarter, I think, um, which is, uh, you, you know, quite a big, uh, quite a, quite a big advance in life is to, you know, at that point when you say, you know what? I believed that yesterday, and uh, I no longer believe it today. That's a that's a huge um, amount of freedom and increase in effectiveness. Yeah, Jordan Peterson once said he's, he was talking about why why do people react so emotionally and negatively to having their beliefs challenged? 
um, right? And people get really yeah. mad. Like if, if, you know, if you believe X and I try to convince you not, like people get really, like really upset. Um, and his theory on it, he's a, you know, psychologist way background. His theory on it is basically people, is that the belief occupies the same sort of mental circuitry as your children. Um, ah. <laughs> oh, so there was my baby. My baby. No, I, I birthed this idea. Yeah, but this idea is my baby, and like it's my child, um, and like like it's core to my identity, and like I'm responsible for it, um, and I've yeah. committed myself to it, um, and I'm emotionally entangled with it. And if you're gonna like tell me to, that I need to let go of my belief, it's like telling me I need to kill my baby, yeah. right? And it generates that same level of like visceral response, like for <laughs> the same reason. And you say there's not this problem with it, which is you know these aren't these are you know it's not your baby, right? Like it's not, <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's not real. It can't love you back. Um, and yeah. so, um, you know, yeah, being, being, yeah, more and more, I try to just get myself into the state where it's like, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't actually need beliefs. I need basically knowledge <laughs> and then I need the ability to actually like process new information and try to actually be correct. Um, which, it just, <laughs> which it just turns out is just incredibly hard. Yeah. Well, it's hard psychologically, but, uh, once you learn to do it, it turns out to be a much better life, <laughs> you know, and, and you get furious less. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. That was uh, the latest episode of the Mark and Ben Show, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Great. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Ben. Me